you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. So we begin a series throughout these next months on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that will guide us into the beginning of 2019. We begin this morning with the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Really, it begins in verse 3. So the first two verses just give us a direction of where Jesus was and as he began to teach. As we begin our time in God's Word, I wonder how many of you, and this is not a rhetorical question, so I I would like for you to raise your hand so I can just get a little bit of a gauge of who I'm preaching to and how many of you would uh, understand what I'm talking about here. How many of you grew up going to the equivalent of, of a state fair? A fair? Raise them high. Good, good. County fair? Keep that, keep their hands raised. County fair? Raise your hand. I tell you, you can put your hands down. At 825, not everybody understood what I was talking about here, but I'm glad that you know what I'm talking about here. There was a day when I was growing up, I mean, I I went to Six Flags for the first time when I was maybe a junior in high school. I didn't get to Disney until I was married and had children. So Six Flags and Disney for this young man was the state fair. I mean, it had everything. Now, you would go to the state fair, and uh, an annual pilgrimage in October to the state fair, you would go for the rods, there's no doubt. You would go because your friends were going there. You might have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and it was a time of, of just being together and those kinds of things. But you went for the food, right? You know what I'm talking about with the state fair? Five feet long, five foot Corn dogs, you know, I mean, that you would uh, slather in uh, mustard. Or how about this? You would go for the uh, funnel cakes or the cotton candy or, uh, or the state fair that I grew up had had this taffy that you would get. And the dentists all across Jackson metro area were employed for years to come because of the taffy that everybody would eat. Nowadays, everything is fried. So things that aren't supposed to be fried are fried. Uh, maybe some of you have watched the, the show uh, called Carnival Eats. I mean, uh, that's high class eating at the fair now. That wasn't what it was like when I was growing up, but it would culminate, at least when I was growing up, with one rod called the Ring of Fire. I mean, it just seems so pedestrian now thinking about it, because all it was was just this, this rod that you would just go up here and then up here, and you'd just get a little bit more momentum, and then it would just flip you upside down and upside down and upside down and upside down, and the crescendo of the rod was when it would pause you at the top, and you would hang upside down and see the state fair, just all of it just for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, it felt for an eternity from that vantage point that was so wholly unique, and you would be nauseated, and you would get off, and you would do what? Uh, you, you would say, let me, let me ride it again. Let me ride it again. And so I, I tell you that to kind of preface, and to maybe in some respects give you a warning, because what we are about to embark on as we listen closely to the words of Jesus is going to flip upside down our expectations of what it means oftentimes to be a follower of Christ. There, there is going to be a way that in many ways, uh, before you get on this ride, there, there needs to be a warning to say that this is not for the faint of heart. 
that, that there might be some disquieting symptoms of listening closely to the words of Jesus because there is an upside-down kingdom that is introduced at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that flips our expectations uh, completely on their head of what it means to oftentimes be a follower of Christ in 2019. We begin the Beatitudes in the first verse of Matthew chapter 5, and we read the first two verses that introduce to us the place and positioning of Christ as he utters what we know to be the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes come from a Latin word that simply means blessed, as we see the refrain of blessed are. Seeing the crowds, Matthew 5, 1, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice three principles that I want you to uh, f- discover in this passage. And the, the first principle is connected to uh, what I told you just earlier. The Beatitudes describe the counter-cultural perspective of being a follower of God. The Beatitudes describe the counter-cultural perspective of following God. There's no way to describe it. It's another than to see that the upside-down world that Jesus is introducing to us is one that we do not, one, long for to oftentimes even acknowledge when there's an oxymoronic state of what Jesus is saying. We would not say, as we describe someone who is blessed, oh yeah, find all the people that are persecuted, and that's what it means to be blessed. Find the people that have been reviled for the sake of Christ. Well, that's a blessed person. Find the people that are in the midst of grief, in the midst of mourning, and that is the description of a person who is blessed. So it's surprising to us, even those of us that have sat in these pews for years and decades, there's a sense in which even for the Christian, Jesus' words turn our expectation upside down of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not just for those outside of the church, but it's for this very pastor who is holding the word and proclaiming it before you that is, there's a sense of shock to this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is introducing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you think about the way that our culture describes blessedness, if you think about the way that oftentimes, even within the church, we describe what it means to be blessed in your life or in my life, we might have a counter-beatitudes. If we're just going to be honest, we, we might define the beatitudes something like this. Blessed are the rich and successful because they, they can create heaven on earth. Blessed are those who can control their emotions because they never show weakness. 
Blessed are the cocky and the self-assured and the confident because they will most likely climb the ladder of success. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the latest fads and pleasures because Madison Avenue has prepared an endless uh, buffet for their appetite. Blessed are those who are unforgiving because they will never become someone else's doormat that is walked upon. Blessed are the streetwise. Blessed are the experienced because nothing that is said or ever seen shocks them or surprises them. Blessed are the agitators and the spiteful because they're always occupied. They never have a dull moment. Blessed are those who are safe and are secure and set apart from the dangers of life because they think they will never be harmed. But here's the thing. Our world's beatitudes, the world's values, are, it's a mirage. It's an illusion. It's not true. You cannot create heaven on earth. You can't, through all of your striving and doing, get to a place of utter security, utter confidence. What Jesus is telling us here is that the values of his kingdom are different than the values of our world. And true security comes not in the accumulation of possessions, but true security comes centered in your relationship with Christ. So Jesus describes for us in the Beatitudes a countercultural perspective of what it means to be a follower of God. But, but more than that, I want you to see secondly in this passage here that Jesus describes for us in this passage that the Beatitudes uh, describe the disposition of a follower of God. What do I mean by that? Well, notice again the repetition. Nine times we have blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So we, we best at the outset understand what is the definition of blessing that Jesus talks about. And I think many of us, we see this word and we think that this is a synonym for happiness. The Living Bible, a paraphrase of the Bible a few decades ago, it actually translates. I mean, it's a paraphrase. It's not a literal one-to-one translation, but it paraphrases the Beatitudes to get that very essence. And so nine times it says, happy are, happy are, happy are, happy are. And I want you to hear me very clearly. There, There can be happiness as you are a blessed person, but happiness is not a prerequisite to blessing as you are a follower of God. You can be blessed and not be happy because your happiness is dependent upon your happenings. And sometimes you can't control your happenings. But in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of distress, in the midst of depression, in the midst of disease, you can still be a blessed person. You might not be happy. You remember that old just kind of rhyme, if you're happy and you know it, what? Clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, what? Stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, your face ought to show it. If you're happy and you know it, what? what? It, turn those frowns upside down. Make, make lemonade out of the lemons of life. That, that is what happiness is all about here. And what I want you to see is that blessing is an inner exclamation of joy and peace that comes with being right with God. And you can be blessed even when people revile you persecute you. And that blessing isn't synonymous with happiness. It isn't synonymous with when you frolic to a funeral. 
and, and you've received the news that no parent wants to receive, you might not be happy in that moment, but there's still blessing that can be found in that moment when you are a follower of Christ because peace and joy cannot be taken from you even when the happiness of the moment is taken from you. So to be a blessed person is to be one who is right with God and is living out of the overflow of Christ in you that no matter the circumstances that come your way, there is an anchor to your life. And you're not, in, in the words of Bob Dylan uh, 40, 50 years ago, you're not just blowing in the wind. You're not blowing in the wind of circumstance and of life, but you are grounded in who he is no matter the storms of life. This is the disposition of a follower of God. It is what blessing is all about. So as we think of the Beatitudes at a 30,000-foot level here, we're thinking that there are countercultural perspectives of what it means to be a follower of God. We're also reminded that it is the disposition of a follower of God. So the question then that we must consider is, how do we become a follower of God? If this is true, then what does it mean to be a follower of God? And would you have it and would you know it to see that Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first beatitude is the introduction of what it means to be a follower of God. That the pathway starts right here in Matthew 5, verse 3, which reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You misunderstand this beatitude, you misunderstand the beatitudes. You misunderstand this entry point into the Sermon on the Mount. You misunderstand what Jesus is calling you to and me to as followers of him. Now understand that all of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to continue to come back to this in the months to come. We're going to see how they're not just new teaching that has no correlation in the Old Testament. But in actuality, Jesus is coming to fill the Old Testament teachings to its fullness. He's coming to interpret what had come before him. And so what he's saying here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It has deep allusions and deep foundations in the Old Testament. There are many passages that speak of this. But one in particular that you can write in your margin is Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. that reads like this. Notice the correlation here. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I, God, dwell in the high and lowly places. And I also with him who is of what? A contrite and lowly spirit. Poor in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Notice the words that are being described here. Contrite, lowly spirit, a, a sense of repentance here, a sense of one coming before the Lord. Poverty of spirit does not have anything to do with your financial status. It's not about what the account in your 401k is now over these last three or four months. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about how secure is your children's future with your 529s. What does your annuities look like? This is not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about your spiritual life. He is talking about something that is deep in you. I love the way Tim Keller, pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, talks about the poverty of spirit, and he says it this way. It means seeing that you're deeply in debt before God and you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you 
at infinite cost to him, was the only thing, the only thing that saved you, the only thing that saved me, the only thing that saves. So poverty of spirit is this utter admission that I can do nothing without him. I can't do anything without him. I I am nothing without him and his grace in my life. This is what it means to be a poverty, to to be poor in spirit. Think about this phrase. Do you know anyone? This is a rhetorical question, so don't point to your spouse when I ask this question here. But do you know someone in your life or at work who just feels as if or, or carries themselves for a variety of reasons, maybe it's nurture, maybe it's a little bit of their nature, but they just carry themselves in a way that somebody always owes them something. And they're, all, they're always being wronged by life. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You don't have to point to the person sitting next to you. You don't have to think of children or parents or aunts or uncles or friends or coworkers because all of us have that in us. Let me just go ahead and tell you, all of us, you know what that word is? That word is called entitlement. We feel entitled. We feel as if life owes us something. And spiritually, this can happen in your life and it can happen in my life. We can be the opposite of poor in spirit. And you know what that looks like? It is spiritual entitlement. When we come before God and we treat him like a divine vending machine. And we gather together our loose currency, our loose change of church attendance, our prayers, our morality. We put it in the the divine vending machine and we feel as if if we do our part, God must give us A1, B2, C3. What we need, what we want. And there's sometimes in our lives that spiritually we come before God and we come before him as if He owes us anything. Do you understand that today? That all that you have, all that you are, it's all gift. It's all gift. Your mind, your intellect, your family, your experiences, the joys, the difficulties, the house, this church, all is gift. Our salvation is gift. We are saved through faith alone, in his grace alone, in Christ alone. And so poverty of spirit is an admission that all that we have is from him. And I say that because as we come into 2019, there is a sense in which that we, we, we forget That while we're saved in his grace and by his grace and by faith alone, in his finished work alone, there are times where we say, well, we got to do our part and we've got to be sanctified in our strength. So he saves us at our justification solely in his gracious work, but we better get our act together and we better do something. And so we make resolutions. I don't think anything's wrong with resolutions. Just past couple of days, Danielle, myself, our three boys, we sit down and we, we have holy habits that we pray through. And our boys, 7, 11, 13, I mean, we talk about spiritual, we talk about physical, we talk about uh, mental goals that we have, holy habits that we want to cultivate. There's nothing wrong with resolutions, but at times, what can be exalted in our resolving states as we move into the new year is me, myself, and I. And so we think like this, 
in 2018, there are certain parts of my life that I ultimately want to stop doing, and there are certain things that I want to start doing. And so we say, I want to stop doing, and you just fill in the blank. You say, I'm married, and at times when I don't get my way in marriage, I can be a little passive-aggressive. I want to stop doing that, and I want to be a better spouse. So you resolve to do that. Or you say, you know, work is really stressful for me, and so I want to stop coming home and giving all of my best to my work environment and giving the rest of the leftovers that ultimately is my stress to my children or to my wife. So we want to stop and start. And what I want you to hear very clearly is that poverty of spirit is realizing that in your strength, you can do nothing. I love Celebrate Recovery. Are you familiar with the ministry of Celebrate Recovery? It's a ministry that started decades ago at Saddleback Community Church, which is in California, Rick Warren's church that he pastors. It is a ministry that we have here at Dawson that began uh, months ago under Kristen Torres and her leadership and others that are even in this room and in the choir that are a part of this. Celebrate Recovery is a ministry for those people's hurts and habits and hang-ups. It is a ministry that has personally benefited uh, my life and my family's life. I, I've seen marriages restored through that ministry. I've seen the power of the gospel connect to people in and through that ministry. If you're familiar with AA, if you're familiar with NA, in many ways, Celebrate Recovery is coming in that stream of a recovery-based ministry, but it is deeply entrenched and anchored by God's Word, and it is a Christ-saturated ministry. So much so that when you begin, as AA has the steps, you have 12 steps, and so Celebrate Recovery has eight recovery principles, and guess what they're based upon? They're based upon the Beatitudes. And the first step, the first recovery principle is based upon this very passage. Realize that I'm not God and admit that you are powerless to control your tendency to do the wrong thing and that your life is unmanageable. Now, at times we think to ourselves, you know, that's really good for my niece to hear my cousin to hear, my co-worker to hear, but we need to hear today, all of us need to hear this. This is true for you, it's true for me, it is true for every one of us in the sanctuary. That we must, at the point of our justification, but continually in our sanctification, be reminded that there is no one of us that is righteous, no, not even one, Paul would say in Romans 3. And we need his grace for our sins even now. Now, there are different consequences for sins. There's no doubt that there's different consequences for adultery, heroin addiction. There are a lot of different consequences. But I want you to hear me very clearly that your gluttony and gossip is just as much an atrocity before a holy God as any overt, noticeable sin that a family member or a friend might have. That pride and prejudice... It alienates us from a holy God as much as one's adulterous affair does. So there are times where we have sins that we struggle with that we're able to kind of cover up 
but all of us in this room, whether people at work or at home know what we struggle with because it is evident, or whether we hide it really, really good, every one of us in this room is a sinner in need of his sanctifying grace. And every one of us needs his grace, not only at our justification, but we need his grace at every moment of our life. And that invitation is the invitation of this first beatitude. Understanding that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I am saying is, is you by yourself is not enough. You trying to grin and bear it, you trying to grit your teeth and become a better person is not enough. Because why? You're the problem, I'm the problem. We are the problem. We need a rescuer to save us from ourselves, not only at the place of salvation, but the ongoing work of salvation in our life. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this first beatitude when he says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Did you hear that? With less of you, There is more of God and his rule. Poverty of his spirit is admitting I'm not the solution. It's admitting that I can't fix my problems, that I need his work. I need to lean not on my own understanding, but in every way trust in him and lean upon him, realizing that the truth of John 15, 6 is true for you and it's true for me, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, this is what's dangerous about this is because a lot of us in this room, including this pastor here, thinks, you know something? There's a lot of things in life I can do. And so we can bring a resume. We can bring achievements. We can bring accolades. We can bring a lot to the table. And what we need to be reminded of here is that it is not enough. We are not enough. That we need his grace at our salvation. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here because you're, you're hearing something that is one of the greatest misconceptions of what being a follower of Christ is. For whatever reason, and I would say it is the influence of Satan, oftentimes we think to become a Christian, we got to get our act together. I can follow God when I become a better person. And when I stop doing all the wrong things, and then I start doing some good things, then God's going to love me. But here's the truth of Christianity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize that you are broken and you need a rescuer to come and rescue you from your sinful state. And that is not just a truth that we need to be reminded of for our salvation, but it is a truth that we need to be reminded of for our sanctification and our service to him. There is a principle that God uses our weaknesses and hurts oftentimes as fertile soil to plant ministry and to grow it out of. I love the story of Chuck Colson. Many of you know Chuck Colson. Colson was special counsel for President Nixon. He was embroiled in the middle of the Watergate scandal. He goes to jail because of that. He was called, quote-unquote, the hatchet man for Nixon. 
And so he comes to this place where he becomes a believer, goes into prison as an atheist. He begins to read the work of C.S. Lewis. The Holy Spirit captures his heart. He gives his life to Christ Jesus. He admits his spiritual poverty, follows Christ, gets out after he serves his time, and he creates this ministry called Prison Fellowship that has affected millions of people that have been behind bars and incarcerated across the world. Now, Colson's with the Lord now. He's died and he's with the Lord, but his words continue to speak this wonderful truth. Notice what Colson says about his spiritual poverty. Notice that he says this, that the great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men and women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing that God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, none of the achievements, none of the degrees, none of the awards, none of the honors, or none of the cases that I've tried before and won before the Supreme Court. What God has used in my life to touch literally thousands of other people is the fact that I am a convict and I went to prison. That was my greatest defeat. It was the only thing in life that I did not succeed in. And it is the very thing in my life that God has redeemed and used the most. I told you, strap on your belt. There's an upside-down nature of this kingdom. And there's some of us in this room that desire to be used by God in 2019. There are many of us in this room that God is working a work in our hearts. And I want you to be reminded that the most fertile place for ministry in your life is not your accolades, it's not your achievement, it's not the place that you're at your most natural, but it is that place of your greatest pain. It is the place of your greatest hurt. It is the place of your greatest mistake. And there are many of us in our spiritual pride that say, God, I want you to use everything and anything in my life, but that I just got to move on from. And it's at that place, it's at that place that God is saying, will you bow before me and will you see that my strength is sufficient in your greatest weakness? Will you have a spiritual poverty, a sense of, of being open to him? Understanding that your hurts and your wounds, your mistakes, your sins, your problems, they're never wasted. He never wastes your wounds. But he redeems them when you bow before him and say, God, with open hands, I give you my all. Because I can't save myself. And even in my service to you, you're not looking for me to help you with my intellect. You're not looking for me to help you with my experience. You're looking for me to bow my knee before you and be a willing vessel to say less of me, more of you. Bob Dylan, the great poet laureate of pop music, for 60 years, was asked, 
if, if there's one song, one song that he could sing in his final concert, what would it be? And you know what he said? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The words of Rock of Ages. I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray this morning for the person who just admits this morning that they are interested in the claims of Christianity, but they would not consider themselves a follower of Christ. And, and they're, they're curious. I pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to them the very depth of their heart, for they to, to, to hear very clearly that Christianity is not about fixing yourself up and presenting yourself whole and perfect to a holy God. We can't do that. It's admitting our need for your grace. It is coming before you admitting that, that we are sinners even when we do good things and live a moral life. None of us are good enough when it comes to your holy standard. We all fall short. And for the person that is here today that is considering the claims of Christianity, may your Holy Spirit make that crystal clear to them today. For those of us that have been followers of you for years or decades, may you speak to our hearts and remind us that it is in those places where we would humble ourselves, admit our vulnerabilities, admit our hurts, to be able to share out of the overflow of pain that it's in that place that, that we're wounded healers. That you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you use those places as instruments of grace to point people to the one true healer, our Savior and Lord. May today we admit our spiritual poverty, understanding that it is in that moment that your grace comes to us. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ.